Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the election of a pathological liar to the House of Representatives, whose new leader is defending him on the basis that George Santos was democratically elected by his constituents, who voted for a completely fictional person, and are now left stuck with an abject fraud. Joining us to discuss what can be done to get legitimate representation for the constituents of Long Island, New York, is Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich and the Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians' Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. The co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst will discuss his latest article at CNN, Why the House is Incapable of Dealing with George Santos. Then we'll speak with the reporter who has covered the war in Ukraine for The Guardian since it started 326 days ago and has been in Ukraine visiting the front ever since. Joining us from the UK is Luke Harding, a journalist, writer and award-winning foreign correspondent for The Guardian. He was The Guardian's Moscow bureau chief before the Kremlin expelled him from the country in the first case of its kind since the Cold War. His books include A Very Expensive Poison, The Assassination of Alexander Litvinenko and Putin's War with the West, The Snowden Files, The Inside Story of the World's Most Wanted Man, Mafia State, How One Reporter Became an Enemy of the Brutal New Russia, WikiLeaks, Inside Julian Assange's War on Secrecy, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Collusion, How Russia Helped Trump Win the White House. And we will discuss his latest book, Invasion, The Inside Story of Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. And joining us now is Julian Zelizer, who's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich and the Fall of the Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians Take Down the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. He's the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst, and his latest article at CNN is Why the House is Incapable of Dealing with George Santos. Welcome to Background Briefing, Julian Zelizer. Nice to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Julian. And the new House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, was specifically asked what he's going to do about George Santos, and he said he was going to allow the democratic process to stand. He was elected by his constituents and that he would uh, refer to the issue to the Ethics Committee. And, of course, his new regime, which is largely the tail that wags the dog in terms of the Freedom Caucus being the most powerful part of his constituency now, disproportionate influence, one of their first acts is to get rid of the Ethics Committee, or at least to emasculate it. So it was a kind of a pathetic lie in a way, because he's saying that basically the people elected this guy, and the point is that the people, they didn't elect George Santos, they elected the fraud, the guy that created this extraordinary amount of lies about himself. And unfortunately, they're stuck with the real George Santos. So isn't that the real problem? That is the problem. So it's uh, it's quite a situation. It's not as if he lied about 
one part of who he was or something. He literally invented a character almost. And voters elected that character. But still, uh, for political reasons, for reasons of how the House works, very hard to remove him. Uh, And the clearest path to the problem being solved is for him to resign. But Santos doesn't want to resign. It's not clear to me that uh, Republicans in Congress necessarily want him to, to resign. They don't want to lose the seat. Uh, so in some ways, he's he's sitting you know, pretty comfortably as long as he doesn't feel any shame uh, or embarrassment about everything that's being revealed. Well, the, the crowning lie, if you will, is apparently that as recently as 2019 in videos, they have uh, George Santos calling himself Anthony DeVolder. So we're not even sure about his name. No, it's true. I I mean, look, the the criteria for not allowing someone to have uh, their seat is purely around uh, the requirements of age, residency, um, and citizenship. So far, that hasn't been challenged, although I have no idea what comes the next, you know, what comes tomorrow, what new revelation. But uh, if those all fit, even if his name is different than he said, even if their persona is different than he said, the only tools the House has, uh, one is to expel him, which requires a two-thirds vote of those present and voting. It has rarely been used. And the other punishment method is to censure him, uh, which requires a majority of the House, which is a rebuke. He keeps his seat, he stays in office, and meant to be humiliating. Uh, But it's not clear to me he would really care if he was censured. So, um, yes, uh, the video shows he used different names. He claimed educational and professional experiences that he never had. He invented his own kind of heritage. Um, But there's still not that much that can be done at this point. Um, And I think they're going to try just having the ethics committee flush it out. In the end, the House has to vote on their recommendations, too. What about that from the outside? Would it be possible to sue him over voter fraud because apparently he has a phony address? They're trying, uh, and that might connect to the issue of residency, um, meaning uh, did he actually fulfill the requirements? But uh, it's still very, very hard uh, you know, the, the bias of the House always, this isn't simply a modern problem, is they are not uh, inclined to try to get rid of someone. They'd rather let the voters do that or they'd rather try to humiliate and pressure them into resigning. Uh, but this challenge about residency and um, his place of address, maybe it will open a door uh, to something that puts him in jeopardy. But thus far, I think he's still pretty confident. And the Republicans in Congress certainly aren't moving very aggressively to do anything about this. Well, there are, in terms of the press, there's some lots of investigations into where he got the $700,000. We know that he got some money from Russian oligarchs, one of whom is, is under sanctions, who you know got his relatives to pony up money. What if there's something, it's a real smoking gun in terms of a press investigation into the 700,000? Well, uh, a member can still serve even if they're in jail. Uh, so, again, <laughs> really? the, the, the pro, uh, you know, the process really technically does allow for a lot to happen. So I don't know where that investigation will go. Some of these investigations are quite serious about campaign finance. 
uh, but it doesn't necessarily change the problem. And look, we have seen the House Republicans are willing to tolerate a lot uh, to protect their majority. And uh, there's many, my, I guess, my guess is that in, in the coming weeks, there will be more Republicans who are openly defending Santos and kind of presenting him as a victim and uh, using a Trumpian kind of argument that, that he's the one who's under attack rather than him doing something wrong. Uh, but, you know, the only question is, do those investigations, for some reason, financial or otherwise, create enough internal pressure on him to consider leaving the job to bring all this to an end? Well, I recall, for example, when Nancy Pelosi got rid of Anthony Weiner, and Anthony Weiner was a real thorn in the side of the Republicans. He was a he made many many speeches that just really got under their skin, and in a way that there is a, an apparent asymmetry. The Republicans can be quite insulting toward Democrats, but Democrats tend to be a little more gentlemanly, and I'm not quite sure why that's the case, but. Anthony Weiner was one of those exceptions that really drove the Republicans crazy. But the minute he got uh, into trouble over uh, weird stuff that he was sexting with a, a woman called Sidney Leathers, of all, of all names, um, he, she booted him out. So there's an example of how, and how did she manage to do that? I mean, he, I guess he, he didn't resist, right? That's the key. He conceded in the end to do it. So that is the key. Uh, I do think there's a difference in how the Democrats and Republicans think about these issues. Al Franken's another example where he fell quite fast. And you don't see this happen very much in the Republican Party, not just because the Republican under fire is different, but the party leadership is simply uh, much more tolerant of any kind of behavior at this point. Uh, look at the former president. Uh, and in this case, they're dealing with a really narrow majority. And this is a seat that will go Democratic if there's a special election at this point. So I think all that weighs much more heavily, frankly, on Republicans than any concern about his lies. And we're learning some Republicans knew about this ahead of time. This wasn't all a big surprise. And they turned uh, a blind eye toward it. In fact, one of the Republicans who knew about it is a close aide to Kevin McCarthy. He was concerned about the lies. So... There's no recall position or petition possibility here. I mean, right. if you're a constituent of his in the 3rd District in Long Island, um, you know, the guy doesn't even have a district office. He's not likely to open one. There's no constituent service. So is there anything they can do? I mean, talk about democracy. You know, you'd think that there would be a mechanism. I know we have a recall mechanism here in California, which is largely being re abused. Yeah, I, I don't think there is at this point. The, the recourse for voters will be, you know, the next election, 2024. And that's why these two-year uh, limited terms, uh, they're not term limited, but they're limited before you have to go up for re-election. That's the mechanism, unless you have something like what California has. So I think uh, voters, I'm sure many are incredibly frustrated with this uh, and upset to learn they voted for a person who doesn't exist. Um, but I'm not sure there's really much uh, they can do. I'm, I'm sure there'll be legal exploration into it, but I think they have to live with this member um, until they have a chance to vote him out, unless the House takes extraordinary measures, bipartisan, and decides to get uh, rid of him, literally. But what about the case from Brazil, 
where there was an indictment that languished because they couldn't find him. But then when he became a congressman, they had an address, and now the Brazilian courts have revived the case where he apparently embezzled, I think, $700, stole a checkbook from somebody that his mother was taking care of. What happens if the Brazilians, you know, serve him, for example? Yeah, the, I mean, I don't know how the kind of convergence, to be honest, of international law and uh, the ability of a convicted felon to be a member of Congress mesh, but I don't think it would overwhelm that right that a member has. I mean, if they can serve here in the United States as a result of infractions of U.S. law, Unless there's somehow he's going to be uh, extradited, I'm not sure is that much, again, that certainly the electorate can do uh, or that the House will do because of that. So this week in the House, as bad as this is, there's something really bad looming. Uh, We're learning now from Janet Yellen that on Thursday, the U.S. will reach the the debt limit threshold. What do you think is going to happen now? Julian Zelazer with this nihilistic house that seems to be all about burning down the house. Of course, that was uh, the title of one of your books about New Gingrich. Well, I think the threat is serious. And uh, again, these are unfolding stories, but we're learning this was one of the demands uh, on McCarthy uh, that he move forward in a serious way and prepare for it. Uh, the threat, this happened in 2011 when President Obama was in office, Republicans, the Tea Party Republicans basically demanded spending cuts and threatened not to do what is a routine decision. It seems that this group is even more radical than the Tea Party. Uh, And the threat itself is as interesting as the demand for budget cuts, the kind of effort to create chaos and instability. Look, the consequences would be horrendous. Uh, The Treasury Department is trying to find ways to avert the effects. Uh, But I don't think anyone is in doubt that if the federal government is not going to pay uh, for things they've agreed to pay, uh, we're going to have a lot of financial fallout here and and elsewhere. And the fact we can't predict that in the end, uh, the Republicans in the House will concede, that is a problem. That's a level of uncertainty about routine decisions, uh, a consequence of the new Republican Party that's extraordinarily dangerous. And they could end up rattling markets, shaking the economy, all for we don't even know what. It's not even clear exactly you know, what their goal is with this. Your recent book, Julian Zelazam, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. This program, background briefing, if it has a motto, I'm not sure that that's the way to describe it, but uh, <clears throat> the notion is to create a reality to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. So in wrestling with that notion, which you've also wrestled with in your book, Myth America, how does it apply to, to this Freedom Caucus now, this radical right-wing group that, as I mentioned earlier, is the tail that wags the dog of Kevin McCarthy's house? It's not like QAnon where you, they have weird beliefs, but you know, at least you can uh, they can enunciate them. I don't know that what these people believe. Do you do, have they? Do they have an ideology? 
Well, I, I mean, I think it's now shifted from radically conservative in terms of policy to a radicalism in terms of uh, the desire. A, they want power and they will do anything for power. But B, I think chaos is an end in itself. Uh, I think there is a, a desire to destabilize institutions. Uh, in some ways, it's very Trumpian to cause problems, to cause instability, to cause uncertainty. And that in itself is what they stand for. That's their anti-establishment motto. Um, and it is connected to George Santos. It's connected to what we deal with in our book. They are not kind of connected, I think, uh, to, to facts, to reason, uh, to serious policy debate. That those things don't concern them, and and that allows them a lot of latitude in their mind to do what is necessary. So they'll hear, well, if you don't raise the debt ceiling, you're going to trigger a financial breakdown. They'll say that's just not true. We don't believe that. Uh, and if you're negotiating with a, a caucus like that, uh, it's very difficult to rein them in. And, and so I don't know what the exact policy goals are, um, but tying up the government itself is, I think, their biggest objective. But Biden has just handed them a gift with the, these mm -hmm. uh, classified documents. Now, apparently, there's a 20 estimate of 20 missing from his days as vice president. And obviously, they're going to run with it already. Jim Jordan is out of the gate trying to set up a hearing with the Judiciary Committee. <laughs> Ironically, could that be a distraction from the distractors? In other words, uh, uh, maybe that'll stall their, their destructive agenda and they'll go after chasing down that rabbit hole instead of bringing down the full faith and credit of the United States? It could be. I mean, that's one way it can work. They can get distracted. And, and you're right, this is a gift. It's incredibly uh, it's going to be incredibly tempting for them to go all in uh, because he's given them enough to then use that as the basis uh, of this investigation into the government that they want to do, kind of McCarthyite-like uh, tactic. Um, but it could also work together in tandem with that other goal, meaning all of this uh, in their minds and at least in their rhetoric is about stopping a corrupt government. And I could imagine they tie, we won't raise the debt ceiling to uh, look at you know, the hypocrisy of President Biden, who himself is corrupt, all into one big agenda, and they can fuel each other. So that's a different way in which it can go. That could actually bring us closer to the brink of a crisis rather than moving us away from it. Well, just in closing, the agenda that's now called, what, the, the weaponization of the government is being mm -hmm. led by Jim Jordan, who himself is connected to the insurrection. He had at least three phone conversations with Donald Trump on the very day of January the 6th. So it's pretty brazen that somebody who could well be involved in an insurrection and seems to have had at least tacit support, if not active involvement, is creating a situation where he's suggesting that somehow the people involved in the insurrection are victims that the government has overreached and gone after them. I mean, surely people can see that as a brazen way to get himself off the hook and deflect the blame onto a mythical deep state when he is very, very likely guilty of sedition. Well, I'll add to that, 
um, it's part of, he is part of this Republican caucus that as they are setting up this investigation is literally weaponizing government. That's what using the debt ceiling as a tool is. It's taking uh, government, it's using it as a partisan uh, bludgeon, and it's not worrying about the consequences. So yes, the hypocrisy is everywhere. Uh, and, and obviously to have people involved and supportive of a, a literal insurrection and effort to overturn the election complain or set up this investigation is going to be hard for a lot of people to stomach. Uh, but we have seen, once again, a lot of the Republican electorate doesn't care. And there's often a profound disconnect between the kinds of facts you just laid out and the belief system of, of voters, of the conservative media and of Republican politicians. And that gets back to the dangers of when we don't have a public square grounded on the same kind of information, when disinformation, lies, and conspiracy become part of the body politic, then you can have someone like Congressman Jordan do all these things at once and be brazen and essentially get away with it. Well, Jillian Zelizer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Julian Zelizer, who's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, whose recent books include Fault Lines, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, and The Presidency of Donald J. Trump, A First Historical Assessment. He's the co-host of the Politics and Polls podcast and a CNN political analyst, and his latest article at CNN is Why the House is Incapable of Dealing with George. Santos. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back with a reporter who has covered the war in Ukraine for The Guardian since it started 326 days ago and has been in Ukraine visiting the front ever since. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Luke Harding, who's a journalist, writer, and award-winning foreign correspondent for The Guardian. He was The Guardian's Moscow bureau chief before the Kremlin expelled him from the country in the first case of its kind since the Cold War. His books include A Very Expensive Poison, The Assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, and Putin's War with the West, The Snowden Files, The Inside Story of the World's Most Wanted Man, Mafia State, How One Reporter Became an Enemy of the Brutal New Russia, WikiLeaks, Inside Julian Assange's War on Secrecy, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Collusion, How Russia Helped Trump Win the White House. And his latest book is Invasion, The Inside Story of Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. Welcome to Background Briefing, Luke Harding. 
Thank you, Ian. Great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Luke. And the war in Ukraine is now in its 326th days. And you were there for day one, right, on February the 24th. Well, yeah. I mean, I, actually, I was there for, for day, well, m- minus one or minus more than one. Uh, I mean, I've been reporting on Ukraine for about 15 years, uh, ever since I was the Guardian's bureau chief in Moscow between 2007 and 2011. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've been there pretty solidly over the last year or so. Um, and essentially, when Vladimir Putin in the autumn of 2021 started sending tanks, um, armored vehicles, fuel um, supply uh, columns to Belarus, to, to Ukraine's border. I mean, I, I really, I really thought the worst. I mean, because basically with Putin, if if you've got two options, bad or even more bad, then then you go with the worst option. And so, yeah, I was reporting from Donetsk in the east of the country um, in December of 2021. Um, in January of last year, I was in Mariupol. Uh, on the Sea of Azov, uh, and yeah, I was in Kiev um, on the on the day of the invasion. So, at the moment, Russia is claiming to have captured um, Solodar, which is near Bakhmut. The, the Ukrainians are, are saying no, not quite so. Why do you think uh, this is important? This salt mining town. And by the way, there's a conflict on the Russian side. The warlord from uh, the Wagner Group. Prigozhin is claiming his his guys, his mercenaries are doing the heavy lifting and the Russian military is saying, no, no, we're in there too. So that's a strange thing to begin with. So, But why why has Putin laid down a marker on Solidar? Um, I think it's um, symbolic rather than strategic. I mean, I, I've, I've been to Bakhmut, which is pretty close by. It's about 10 kilometers down the road. Um, I was there in, in late summer of last year when already there was massive fighting going on there was kind of constant boom in the streets of outgoing artillery uh, outgoing ukrainian artillery um and you, you could see sort of uh, massive um ukrainian artillery pieces uh, smash missiles um on the road approaching bakhmut so so it's been the center of intense fighting for for more than six months uh, the reason it's important is this is the first time uh since early summer that that russia's had anything to celebrate on the battlefield i mean this is this is definitely a victory i mean i think they they pretty much they've taken the town but it's it's a small town of about ten thousand people but but of course it allows the russians to argue that they're going forward and they've got momentum but but yes you're right about spits within the russian military command i mean on the one hand you've got uh gerasimov who's just been reappointed as, as the main general in charge of the, the what, what the Russians call the special military operation in Ukraine. And on the other hand, you've got Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's an oligarch uh, with, with his own mercenary group, and, and he's claiming that he took Solodar, his guys took Solodar, at, we have to acknowledge, enormous human costs. I mean, a lot of Russian troops have been killed in, 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 in this fight. But I think, you know, as Moscow sees it, this is the first victory of, of many. And of course, um, I think in the spring, we're going to see both sides trying to push forward. Well, it does seem that Putin is preparing for a spring offensive, but in that part of the world, the spring offensive brings a lot of mud, doesn't it? So you're not going to have armoured columns. And by the way, now we're learning that the UK government has approved transferring Challenger tanks to Ukraine. So what kind of a environment are you going to have on the ground there in, in the spring? Well, uh, uh, Ian, I mean, I, I remember... A year ago, almost when there was a lot of sort of speculation that the, the, the weather, the mud, uh, the cold conditions made it impossible for, for Russia to invade. And of course, actually, we saw these massive 
tank columns trundling towards Kiev from 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 Belarus through the sort of forests and actually along the road they were they were taking roads uh, you know sort of leaving tracks on the asphalt so I don't think kind of military operations are impossible it's true that advancing is is harder um, and I think I think uh, essentially we're, we're looking at a couple of key months March and, and April I think if the Ukrainians are going to um, try and sort of counterattack and push further forward again then, then March is is probably the month they would do it. Uh, the Russians, by contrast, probably I, I, I suspect it's more like April. I mean, what you have to understand is that they started off this war with about 150,000 troops. Putin thought this was a sufficient number to do a kind of multi-vector assault. I mean, they advanced from the north, from the south, from the east, and to subdue the whole of Ukraine. Now, as we now know, the invasion kind of ran into trouble almost immediately, and Russia's been going backwards. I mean, they lost enormous territory in the northeast around Kharkiv, uh, where I was reporting for the Guardian in the south around Kherson. Um, but I sort of I suspect that the Russian focus will be on the Donbass. They'll they'll try and mobilize more people. We're talking up to a half a million soldiers, throw them into battle, and try try and carve out more towns after Solidar. So they'll they'll throw them into into battle on multiple fronts, or will the concentration come from the north? from Belarus? Well, I mean, that, that scenario is, is, is possible. I mean, I mean the, the, the Russians uh, have still got quite a lot of forces. There have been exercises in Belarus. There, there's certainly um, a strategic awareness on the Ukrainian side that there could be a, another attack, a sort of re-attack, uh, an attempt to, um, to take Kiev again from the north. But I think for most people I talk to, including Western sources, their view is the Russians don't have the, the, the manpower, the firepower to do this at the moment. So I think more likely is, is what we've seen in, in Solidar and Bakhmut, ju- just enormous uh, pressure, firepower, artillery o- on the east of the country. Uh, and these first World War style uh, waves of, of soldiers who are just sent across no man's land many of whom are mown down, then you get another wave. What you have to bear in mind is that Putin really doesn't care how many of his own soldiers die. It's, uh, you know, a Russian soldier's life is worth zero. The Ukrainians, by contrast, are far more careful about casualties um, and about sort of launching risky, doomed military operations. So I've heard reports that these wave attacks are so gruesome, and, and you're right that they re- remind you of World War One. and after all, you do have a 600-mile-long front, but is it true that it's at times the bodies of the dead Russians pile up in front of the Ukrainian who are dug in? And if the Russian soldiers who have to climb over piles of dead and dying comrades, if they turn and run and retreat, they're likely to be shot down by Hadirov's Chechens. Have you heard reports to that effect? Well, I mean, I've, I've heard reports from Ukrainian soldiers who, who say that the, the Russian troops uh, are more afraid of their own side than they are of um, their U- Ukrainian opponents. Um, I mean, what we know, of course, is that uh, Prigozhin, the oligarch, uh, the, the mercenary boss of Wagner, has been touring Russian jails. He's been recruiting murderers, convicts, prisoners, um, and these people are being thrown into battle and, and really... A lot of them are killed. I mean, that, that seems to be the purpose, really, that they, they just kind of clear the line by, by putting these guys in. I mean, it's an incredibly brutal and horrible tactic. And, and I think, what, you know, one of the questions to 2023 is whether with this increased manpower, the Russians can actually make progress or actually the Ukrainians can hold them back and, and indeed um, stage advances of their own. But the manpower increase, 
And obviously Putin from day one was reluctant to do full mobilization. He knew that there'd be a backlash. But it looks as though because of the ubiquitous propaganda control he seems to have over the Russian people, he hasn't suffered too much blowback. But still, essentially, the new soldiers that he'd be throwing into the meat grinder will be pretty much like the ones that he's, what, the 400,000 he's just recently recruited. They're ill-trained, ill-equipped, have low morale and little motivation. Isn't that the reality? I I mean, all all of that is true. Uh, I mean, you you talk to any Ukrainian soldier on the front line, I've spent a lot of time with them over the past year or so, and they immediately tell you why they're fighting. They say they're fighting for their families, um, for their country, for their village, for their kids, for their future, for democracy, for Ukraine's right to determine its own fate, its own destiny. And the Russians, by contrast, I mean, they're not clear why they're there. I mean, some of them are fighting for money. Some of them believe the propaganda talk of denazifying Ukraine, demilitarizing it, and so on. But I think we also have to acknowledge that the, the, the Russian military has raised its game. First of all, that they're, they're not making the sort of same mistakes that they made early on in the conflict. And you know what I'm hearing from, from, from Western sources is actually they still have plenty of tanks. They have plenty of artillery. They're, they're moving their... Um, the economy has been kind of retooled. It's, it's being reinvented as a, a sort of wartime economy. You, ha- you have um, munitions factories which are working double shifts. And so I think it would be unwise to suggest that, that the Russians are going to run out of shells anytime soon or that they're finished. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a stupid, brutal, clumsy monster, the Russian army, but, but it, it, it's, it's still a monster. So on the Ukrainian side, then, one of the statistics I heard recently which would be alarming for the Ukrainians is that the Ukrainian military burns through artillery shells in one week, the amount that the U.S. produces in one month. So is there going to be a a problem down the the line here later on? I mean, I know they've got some from South Korea and other places, particularly in terms of artillery shells. But I mentioned earlier that the the British government's just announced that they're allowing Challenger 2 tanks to be deployed. Maybe that'll force the hand of the Germans, who for some reason or other have been incredibly reluctant to deploy the Leopard uh, tanks that they have promised. So how about the resupply on the Ukrainian side? How do you see that as the spring offensive begins? I, I mean, that that's absolutely crucial. Um, and I was talking to one Western official uh, yesterday, actually, about this. I said, could Ukraine win? Uh, and he said... He said, basically, I'm optimistic, but he says it depends on two things. One is Ukrainian bravery. uh, And the other thing is, is a a continued supply of of heavy weapons from from the West, from from the US, first and foremost, but but from Canada, from the UK, from the French, from the Germans and so on. Um, And that that, that is undoubtedly true. I mean, were it not for Western military assistance, I I think that, well, I mean, hard to say, I mean, Kiev, the Ukrainians may have been able to hold Kiev, but but I think they would not have been able to do the, the, the rather spectacular counteroffensives we saw last autumn. And certainly they would have zero chance of taking back further territory. And you know, what, what the government of Vladimir Zelensky says is that, you know, give us 300 tanks and we can we can finish the job. And um, I think I can understand that their urgency because basically Putin is settling in for a long war, for, for an attritional battle. He he thinks, he always thinks that Russia's appetite for pain is greater than than that of his adversaries. Um, and that in time, he'll be able to grind the Ukrainians down. And, and moreover, that the West will flake, that the US, that the, because of you know political differences, 
boredom, expense, you know, the, 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 the Republican majority in, in, in the House, et cetera, that, that actually sooner or later the Americans will, will, will stop this um, and, and he will win. And so the Ukrainians, by contrast, are saying, look, we need all this stuff now. We need tanks now if we understand a realistic chance of, of pushing the Russians out. So, so things are very delicately poised. We'll have to see where it goes in the next few months. Let's now take a brief station break and we're we'll back continuing the conversation with Luke Harding in a moment. Now he's helping for destruction. He's a fading confused and his brain has been mismanaged with great skill. Now all he believes are his eyes. In his eyes they just tell him lies. But there's a woman on my block sitting there in a cold chair. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we're continuing the conversation with Luke Harding, who's in the UK, where he's a journalist, writer, and award-winning foreign correspondent for The Guardian. He was The Guardian's Moscow bureau chief before the Kremlin expelled him from the country in the first case of its kind since the Cold War. His books include A Very Expensive Poison, The Assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, and Putin's War with the West, The Snowden Files, The Inside Story of the World's Most Wanted Man, Mafia State, How One Reporter Became an Enemy of the Brutal New Russia, WikiLeaks Inside Julian Assange's War on Secrecy, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Collusion, How Russia Helped Trump Win the White House. And his latest book is Invasion, the inside story of Russia's bloody war and Ukraine's fight for survival. So, Luke Harding, you brought up the House Republicans, which is a, basically the tale that wags the dog of these radical Freedom Caucus types who many of whom are a part of what you could call the pro-Putin caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Of course, you've got Russian assets in the media over here with Fox News' most popular host, Tucker Carlson. It would seem to me that given that Putin comes out of intel, he's clearly not a military man, at least he doesn't seem to have been particularly effective in that regard, keeps firing generals. Is he really invested in the House of Representatives cutting funds? Because that seems to me to be his best play. Yeah, I'm, I mean, Ian, I, I would agree with you. And and look, I've, I've spent months in Ukraine. I mean, I haven't been on Capitol Hill. I haven't been in D.C. And, and I'm not a kind of American political reporter. But I, I do find it strange, bewildering, that, that American first conservatives are, um, not all of them, but some of them, are essentially repeating Kremlin talking points. So I mean, complaining about the cost, um, saying America should not be involved, basically suggesting that the Russians are America's true ally. And, and maybe you can explain this for ideological reasons, um, the, the fact that people people admire Putin as a kind of strong leader, perhaps, as someone who stands for conservative values, pro-orthodoxy, and so on. But but actually, they're, they're kind of missing the reality here, which is that, that, that Putin just wants to crush America. He, he wants a new world order in which Russia can do what it wants. Um, in on the European continent and beyond, where if it if it so wishes, it can it can steamroll a smaller sovereign states, whether it's Ukraine today or say the Baltics tomorrow, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, um, and he he uh, really affords a kind of direct challenge, uh, a pretty remorseless challenge to American security interests. So, 
it seems to me the patriotic thing to do is to support Ukraine. And, and actually, to be fair, most Republicans do support support Ukraine, as, as do most Democrats. Um, but but clearly that the fact that Tucker Carlson and others are are pro-Moscow, pro-Kremlin, gives um I mean, it, it gives gives great hearts to to the Kremlin, and it also means that they can kind of amplify those those, those voices and undermine the consensus in America, um, which which for now pretty much supports supports the Zelensky government. Well, unfortunately, though, it's not just pro Putin caucus in the House of Representatives. Some of our allies, um, if I can use the word loosely, like the Emiratis, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Turkey's leader Erdogan, Orban in Hungary, even Netanyahu in Israel, which is a strong U.S. ally, they all seem to be, if not soft on Putin, more on board Putin than they are in support of uh, Joe Biden. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. And actually, when I was writing my book, Invasion, uh, I, I tried to be, you know, I have a whole chapter called "Call the Allies" on this unprecedented anti-Kremlin coalition, I mean, led, led first, f- first of all, um, but by the US, by the Biden administration, but also including um, the, the the democratic world, the European Union and so on. But but we have to acknowledge that there are a lot of major countries which are not supporting the Ukrainian position. I mean, the, the, obviously China, which is a, a, an ally of Russia's, um, but also India and South Africa and, and what you might loosely call the global South. So it's so a much of Latin America, African countries and so on. And yeah, I mean, the, the Russians have been really working these countries. Uh, and I know that that Ukraine has been kind of concerned and has itself been doing sort of diplomatic outreach to try and explain what, what's at stake here, that that if Putin wins, uh, if he extinguishes Ukraine, which is what he wants to do, then that's, that's a precedent for, for any country that wants to invade another one. Uh, I mean, th- this is in, I mean, this is, a, I mean, Zelensky says this, and I would agree with him, this is a conflict of good versus evil. I mean, that there's not been a war with this degree of moral clarity, I think, since the 1930s, the 1940s, since Nazi Germany. And, and what, what essentially we're seeing is, is I would argue, Russian fascism. I mean, it's a, it's a genocidal project to wipe out Ukraine, uh, to eliminate uh, what, what, what the Kremlin describes as Ukraineness. That means Ukrainians can either become good Russians or, or they can be destroyed. It means uh getting rid of ukrainian language culture burning textbooks history primers and so on blowing up monuments which i've seen myself in areas of russian occupation to to people like tash shevchenko ukraine's national poet i mean there's a shevchenko statue in every every square every town square in ukraine but 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 the russians have destroyed him and brought back vladimir lenin and other soviet symbols so um it's actually it's an unbelievably chilling project coupled with indiscriminate attacks on on civilians and civilian infrastructure including yesterday in Dnipro where we've seen at least five people killed uh smoldering ruins uh reminiscent of, of 9-11 where the destroyed sort of civilian apartment block that is what this war means uh, I mean it's it's a rolling horror show uh, and and actually whatever your politics whether they're left or right um, I mean it's it's to my mind it's clear that the moral imperative is to support Ukraine so then what do you think is going on in the third world? I know you've addressed it in your book, but it, it's hard to understand. I mean, I can understand why the global south is leery of Europeans since the colonial history comes from European occupations largely. But arguably, Russia is, I mean, I don't think it's arguable. I think it's obvious that Russia's becoming, you know, under Putin, the, the new Russia, Novorossiya, 
or Ruski Mir, he has imperialistic adventurism going on. Or maybe they're delusions, but at least they are clearly imperial. But the Soviet Union itself was kind of an empire, an imperialist operation, wasn't it? If you lived in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, East Germany, wherever they occupied the, and the Baltic states, you know, you had a colonial master. So what is it that the global south sees in terms of wanting to support Russia? I mean, maybe the, the Europeans, Americans, and NATO didn't frame it properly. They made it all about uh, struggle for the survival of democracy as opposed to making it an issue of sovereignty. But what's your conclusion, Luke? Well, I, I mean, it's difficult to put yourself into the, the headspace of Narendra Modi, for example, in India or, or other leaders. But I think their view is is firstly that this is a local European conflict. It's not a conflict which especially affects them. And uh, they don't see it as a wider struggle for, for justice, for, for democracy, for self-determination, for, for, for accountability and so on. And so it doesn't sort of necessarily resonate. And of course, the Indians have been buying very cheap Russian oil. I mean, we've had Western sanctions on Russian oil, but but the Russians, of course, as you would predict, are finding markets elsewhere. But it's also interesting, I mean, the, the point you raise, the themes you raise about imperialism. I mean, what's so striking about this war is, I think, the reason, well, one of the reasons that Putin is so obsessed with Ukraine is essentially the threat of example, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a European country of about 40, 45 million people with an awful lot of native Russian speakers in it. And, and essentially, if Russia can be pro-Western, pro-European, successful, economically, democratic, and pro-Western, uh, where, where, where presidents come and go, then why can't Russia? I mean, I mean so, so essentially what, what Putin is doing is to, is to destroy Ukraine so there's no prospect of its integration with, with the West and, and with the sort of transatlantic community. I mean, that, that's absolutely clear. And, and the other thing is that he, he, his ideas, if you can call them that, come straight out of the 19th century. I mean, he, he is channeling, I mean, he even wrote an essay about it, a historical essay, which was published on the Kremlin's website in the summer of 2021. Uh, of of uh, nationality as a concept called narodness of orthodoxy orthodox religion uh, of the Russian language of as you say Ruski Mir this idea of Russia as a kind of cultural space which goes beyond Russia's sort of territorial borders and encompasses Belarus Ukraine and wherever the kind of Russian speakers this this matters to Putin and this shapes his thinking and really drives his his war. I mean, for him, it's it's yeah, it's a war of conquest, but it's also on some some level a kind of religious war or, or almost a civilizational war. You you, you might say uh, pitting Russia against the decadent and evil West. So, in terms of the the Western left that you mentioned, that there has there's still some support for Putin. There is some support over here. It's pretty minimal, but. One of the arguments, of course, is that America is fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. What do you make of that? Well, well I mean, it's, it's not true. Uh, I mean, I mean, despite what Russian state TV says, I mean, there, there are no American soldiers really fighting in Ukraine. I mean, there are a few kind of volunteers who joined the Foreign Legion, but, but the numbers are tiny. The people who are fighting and dying are Ukrainians. Um, and they're not doing it because, because America is making them do it. They're doing it because... They see what happens in places like Bucha and Mariupol when, when, when Russia occupies. What, what happens is that civilians are tortured, executed, raped, dumped in pits and, and in mass graves. I mean, that, that it's just horrific. Uh, I mean, I've seen this for myself. I mean, I, in, in November of last year, I was, I was visiting um, 
well, uh, um, sort of around Khazan in the south and, and a bit before that, I was I was in um, Izum, which is a city in the northeast, completely smashed up by by fighting and by, by Russia, uh, going around a, a torture chamber where, where a survivor was showing me how Russian soldiers had strapped him to a chair and had, had um, put a crocodile clip on his finger and, and had administered using a, 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 field, a military field telephone, which you wind up, had administered electric shocks and, and he passed out and then they woke him up again, revived him, put him back on the chair, did it again. So th this is not, I mean, it's not actually uh, uh, America against Russia, essentially. It's Ukraine fighting for its survival um, with, with Western military and economic assistance. But, but it's, it, it's Ukraine that's suffering and it's Ukraine that is, is, is paying an enormous price. And you mentioned it's a population of 45 million. So they're outnumbered demographically, what, three to one at least by Russia. Yeah, I mean, Russia's a bigger state. Russia mm -hmm. uh, has nuclear weapons. R Russia has an enormous army. But what we've what we've learned over the last year is this army, in, in theory, the second biggest in the world, actually is is corrupt, inefficient, and and vulnerable. And I, and I think what you know what's interesting, what, what will be interesting to watch over the next few months is whether Russia can kind of fix these deficiencies and actually move forward. I, I mean, P Putin's war plan is unchanged. He seeks to annihilate Ukraine. Uh, he he very much wants to install a pro-Russian puppet government and to to get rid of Zelensky, kill him, I think, uh, and and all the people around Zelensky. Uh, and I think his ambition is the whole of Ukraine. It's not just the Donbass. He, he wants to he wants to get as much as he can get. And uh, I think he still thinks that Russia can win. I mean, I mean that that is the narrative in his head that if if enough enough men are mobilized, uh, enough um, shells are, are deployed, enough tanks are thrown into the battle, that he can win this. So what what's happening then with the the notion that his Achilles heel is his economy and these sanctions that were ramped up will eventually bring the Russian people out against him? I mean, he's obviously got complete control over the media, but seems to go beyond that. I mean, I don't know whether it's a useful contrast, but I was struck by how uh, there was a spontaneous demonstration in China uh, about the COVID lockdowns and a building that caught on fire and people died. And all across the, China, people were outraged at their government, even though it even has stronger and more ubiquitous control over its people through uh, surveillance, etc. So there's, there's a peculiar passivity with the Russians. Why? And it looks as if Navalny now is in terrible shape. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much of an opposition left. So it seems to me that that strategy of weakening Putin from within because of economic deprivation will turn the Russians against the war. That doesn't appear to be happening. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean that's definitely true. And you raise an interesting question about the passivity of the Russian population. I mean, my, my personal view is I think sanctions are the right thing to do. I mean, you, you can't march into a neighboring country, kill, kill, killing people and annexing territory without some kind of sort of response from the international community i mean i mean it's absolutely right that sanctions have been imposed but i also think that that probably you know western governments understand that that was never going to tip the russian population against putin and, and what you have what you have to sort of appreciate is that first of all russia now 2023 2022 is, is essentially a totalitarian regime i mean when i was there as the moscow beauty for the guardian a decade or so ago it was it was a sort of authoritarian regime getting darker but but now Actually, any kind of dissent is impossible. A whole series of laws have been passed, um, criminalizing what, what the Russians call spreading fake news. In other words, um, telling the truth about the war in Ukraine. 
And what, what the regime has done, which is very smart, is it's kept its borders open. So people opposed to the war, and, and there's been a significant minority of Russians who, who, who don't like the war at all. Many of them have left. They've left the country. They've fled to neighboring Georgia, to Armenia, to other places, and so on. And, and so that means that the population that remains is largely loyal. It's certainly docile. There's no insurrectionary mood. Um, and it's malleable. Uh, I mean, you know, people still get their their news from from state TV, and state TV um, says that this is a defensive war being forced to um, stop Russia from being taken over and occupied by America. And obviously, this is nonsense, but people believe it. Uh, there's something quite primal: the idea of Russian victimhood, and and Putin plays on this very effectively. So, in the last uh, few minutes, then, Luke Harding. Is there a solution here? It doesn't seem like Putin's interested in one. Zelensky and the Ukrainians, they've got to be suffering huge casualties. I mean, as we mentioned, there's 45 million as opposed to over 150 million Russians. So Russia can afford to lose more of its soldiers, which they're doing in a callous and indifferent way. Uh, Putin clearly doesn't care about casualties, but obviously Zelensky does care about casualties. And you wonder how long they can put up you know, they can suffer losses, which they inevitably have to, even if they're careful. So is there a, a diplomatic solution anywhere on the horizon? I mean, it seems to be pretty chimeric at this point. There, there's no diplomatic solution in at all, none, none whatsoever. And Putin, as I said, thinks he can win. He just thinks he needs to keep going and uh, eventually the West will um, lose heart and stop supporting Ukraine, and 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 he can grind the Ukrainians down in, into the dirt. Uh, that's his calculation. And on the Ukrainian side, they understand perfectly well, correctly, that if Russia does take over their country, then they will they'll be slaves. Um, that the the, the 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 awful scenes we've seen in Russian occupied zones will be repeated everywhere. Uh, so they're 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 fighting a war of of survival. Um, and also. Look, I spent a lot of time there. The, the, the mood among Ukrainians is pretty vehement. I mean, they've, they've suffered so much. As you say, a huge number of soldiers killed, but also so many civilians have died. You know, more than 500 kids we're talking about. Um, thousands of, of civilians died in Mariupol, entombed in, 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 in the bottom of their apartment blocks, you know, smashed, smashed up by Russian missiles. Um, and so no one wants to do a peace deal with Putin. And, and also... Uh, they, they understand perfectly well that, that any pause would be would be tactical. It would it would just be so that Russia can kind of regroup uh, and go again. And so so what what the Ukrainians want is the is the comprehensive, the complete defeat of of the Russian military, the demilitarization of Russia, if you like. And and that that's a pretty big task, but they're, they're determined to do it. And I actually sort of think that if they get the heavy armor, if they get tanks, if they get sophisticated air defense systems, if if they if they get continued military support, first and foremost the U.S. I mean the U.S. is the essential power is, is the country that can determine the outcome of this war. Then they have a good shot at taking back, perhaps not all of the territory they've lost, but 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 more of it um, uh, in 2023. Well, Luke Harding, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Th thank you, Ian. Great great conversation.
And again, I've been speaking with Luke Harding, who's in the UK. He's a journalist, writer, and award-winning foreign correspondent for The Guardian. He was The Guardian's Moscow bureau chief before the Kremlin expelled him from the country in the first case of its kind since the Cold War. His books include A Very Expensive Poison, The Assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, and Putin's War with the West, The Snowden Files, The Inside Story of the World's Most Wanted Man, Mafia State, How One Reporter Became an Enemy of the Brutal New Russia, WikiLeaks Inside Julian Assange's War on Secrecy, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Collusion, How Russia Helped Trump Win the White House. And his latest book is Invasion, The Inside Story of Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye.